those are numbers. And then there is also the context, the context of irreversible climate damage, devastating economic collapses, rampant power abuses, xenophobia, racism, sexism, dehumanization. These are the darknesses. Unless people have their blinders on, I mean, it is there. We may not want to confront it, but it's there. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast from the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I am very pleased to open this series of episodes about diversity by talking to Elise Waterston. She is with us via Zoom from New York. Elise Waterston is a presidential scholar and professor of anthropology at the City University of New York and is also a non-resident long-term fellow for programs in transnational processes, structural violence and inequality here at SCUS. She is a cultural anthropologist who studies poverty and the human consequences of structural and systemic violence. She is also committed to applying knowledge to help solve human problems, some of which we will discuss today. Now, for the past few weeks, I have had her recent book, which is called Light in Dark Times, The Human Search for Meaning, as a constant companion with me. And I have now learned a lot about anthropology and gained some new perspectives on both past and current situations in the world. And I really hope that we can give our listeners some of these insights as well in this episode. In order to do that, we talk a little about anthropology and the general scope of Elise Waterstone's work first, and then go into more details. But now, welcome Elise Waterstone. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Well, thank you very much, Natalie, uh, for having me, to SCAS for arranging this. It's a pleasure for me to be here with you. And I'm here, of course, in New York. So, as you say, my name is Elise Waterston, and I am presidential scholar and professor and department chair at the uh, John Jay College of Criminal Justice, uh, which is a public uni- part of the public university, City University of New York. And we're located right in midtown Manhattan. And I started out my life, my professional life, my adult life, as a school teacher. And when I discovered anthropology, I knew it was something that would never go away. And so I have devoted my, the rest of my career to the discipline of anthropology. And as you mentioned, I am a cultural anthropologist. And with us today, we also have Malin Gignell, medical doctor and scientist within neurobiology, also via Zoom from the University Hospital. I am mentor for Malin in the program Mentor for Research from Uppsala University. Malin, could you introduce yourself as well? Of course I can. Uh, I work in, as a researcher, but I also work as, as a physician within psychiatry. Uh, and I'm here because uh, as a researcher, I'm very interested in how research is communicated and how you reach out and actually communicate with a broader public and not just within the scientific community. So I'm following the discussion today as part of a mentorship program uh, where I have Natalie as a mentor. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, very nice to have you with us. So, back to you, Elise. So, you're a professor in anthropology. So, what does an anthropologist study? Well, the word anthropology itself is this means the study of humankind, and that is what anthropology is. It is the study of humankind in all of its aspects. So, in the anthropology in the United States encompasses four subfields. That is cultural anthropology, and I'm a cultural anthropologist, archaeology, biological anthropology, and linguistic anthropology. So you can see that it covers humankind past and present and all of its different aspects. So that's what anthropologists do as a whole. And of course, there are those subspecialties and people look at particular issues within their subspecialty as well. One of the research methodologies that's known to be affiliated with anthropologists is ethnography. And ethnography is the qualitative research methodology in which anthropologists become deeply immersed in the lives of others, wherever that may be. 
So, and cultural anthropologists, I think it's important to say, take an approach, or many of them do, that is comparative. And if you look at the whole body of anthropological literature, you see that it is cross-cultural. Even if somebody is focusing on one area, and then somebody looks at a similar issue from another area, it in itself is cross-cultural and comparative. But also anthropologists study humans across geopolitical space and across time. So Eric Wolf was one of my mentors, and he used to say that anthropology is the most humanistic of the sciences and the most scientific of the humanities, which I think is a fitting description of the field. So in this episode of SCAS Talks, we're going to talk about your research. And in this book that I've already talked about, your recent book, the description about yourself says that you study poverty and consequences of structural and systemic violence. And I wonder a little bit, how did you get into this area to start with? As I mentioned at the top of this interview, I mentioned that I was a school teacher. And this was in the 1970s. And I worked and lived in a community in Brooklyn, New York that is now gentrified, fully gentrified and unaffordable, but at the time was a place that I could afford to live in and was a very poor community. I was pretty much taken aback or shocked, I would say. I was young and naive, I guess, at the time, that there could be so much poverty in a country that is the wealthiest and most powerful in the world. How could this be? I kept asking myself. And so I decided to start to conduct research in the community in which I lived and worked. And um, I was, again, very naive and I was fumbling around with this qualitative research. I didn't really know what I was doing. And then I realized I need to go back to school. And what would I study? Of course, we didn't have the internet in the 1970s. <laughs> so I went to the library to look up different disciplines to see which discipline would answer my questions. And uh, I discovered anthropology. And, and what, I, what I learned about anthropology is if you're interested in looking at economics or the economic aspects of the situation, anthropology covers that. Politics and power, religion, family, language, it's all there. Cultural meaning. So I said, okay, that's the discipline for me. And I did not study anthropology as an undergraduate. I studied psychology. And I actually found that psychology was too limited for me because it just, at that time anyway, it began and ended with the individual. And that brings us to the notion of systemic aspects of society and structural violence, which is that we have to understand that when you think about violence, there is, of course, interpersonal violence. If I punch you in the nose, <laughs> that's one person being violent against another. But there's another kind of violence, and that's structural violence, which is invisible. We don't necessarily directly observe it, but it is there in the way the society is organized or potentially in the way a society is organized and in its institutions. And it gets produced and reproduced in those systems. So when you think about the military industrial complex, or you think about the prison industrial complex, those are all clearly institutions that produce and reproduce violence. Then there are other institutions that are more subtle, perhaps. We may not necessarily see the violence of our economic system. We may not see so clearly the ways in which the family may reproduce the social violences that are there. And so that is what I am most interested in because it is from looking at things systemically or structurally, it doesn't mean you reduce everything to that because you have to look at the interplay between the individual and the larger structures and systems, but the playing field or the stage upon which we live out our lives are not necessarily created by us, but we are operating within it. And we have to understand what those constraints are in order to understand why we do the things that we do, why other human beings do the things that they do. So what 
I have gathered from looking at your work, all of your projects seem to be connected to what you just mentioned. Can you give some examples? My first book is uh, titled Street Addicts in the Political Economy, and that was looking at the, the street drug scene in New York City in the 1980s. Whether you're looking at uh, women and homelessness, which I, I studied and brought forth in my book, Love, Sorrow and Rage, Destitute Women in a Manhattan Residence. Whether you're looking at uh, my own father's life history, which I did in a book titled My Father's Wars. What cuts across all of those different topics and areas is this idea that we have to look at the individual in society and in that dialectical interplay between lives and the larger social within which they operate, which helps us understand humanity, human beings, and why they do the things that they do. Because that is going back to what is anthropology, the study of humans, the study of humanity. That is what it's all about. What makes people human beings? So, um, yeah, we've already mentioned it. You have recently published the book, Light and Dark Times, The Human Search for Meaning. It's a really beautiful book combining art and anthropology. You've worked together with the artist Charlotte Gordon, um, who has done the beautiful illustrations. And it's very nice. I think you can open it and pick almost any page and just read a little bit and um, get some wisdom or something to think about, I think. Really. For me, it really means that I really start thinking when I open your book and, and look into it. So from the start, how come you collaborated with an artist uh, on this book? How did this whole project start? Well, um, uh, thank you for that question. And um, and thank you for mentioning those kind words uh, about the book. It came about in a very interesting way. So I, this is a, a graphic book of art and anthropology, and it ties to communicating knowledge to larger audiences, to public audiences. So among my many activities over the years in my field, I was president of the American Anthropological Association from 2015 to 2017. Two years prior to that, I was the vice president and it was a very hectic time to be president and vice president. And I was actually quite exhausted by the time my term ended. And uh, what the president of the association does the night before they're finished with their term is give a, an address to an audience of anthropologists at the annual meeting. And that is what I did in December of 2017. The next day I was to be finished with my duties. So I walk on stage and um, speak to this audience of about a thousand anthropologists. And I had prepared an address that I titled Four Stories, A Lament, and an affirmation. And what I did in that talk was contextualize the world at that time, which is a world in darkness. And I, I, I thought deeply about all the different influences on my own thinking within anthropology, but beyond. So there are other thinkers and philosophers and writers and poets who affected me in my journey through knowledge. And I wanted to convey to this audience what I had learned and what I thought we needed to do as anthropologists at, this, at that moment in time in the world. And uh, so there was an artist in the audience and she's Charlotte Corden. I, I wish she could be here to say her, her part of the story, but basically what she shared with me was that she sat in the audience and what she does when she listens to lectures is sketch note. So she draws pictures of what she's hearing and she couldn't draw when she was listening to me. She could only take as scribble down as many notes as possible. And then she went back to her hotel room and she drew this amazing rendition and illustration of my talk, which is in the book. And she sent it to the association staff who then sent it to me that next morning, the day I was to be finished with my duties. And I was completely blown away by this, this drawing. Firstly, I felt heard because of the way she depicted 
the darkness and all its fury and the cotton wool of obfuscation, which is a term that I invoked from Virginia Woolf, the um, world knowledge coming out, issuing forth, and then specks of other colors like red and throughout. So it was beautiful. My husband said to me, you need to work with this woman and create a graphic book for all the students in the world. And I said, oh dear, please leave me alone. I'm tired, I want to rest. And I did, I rested. I wrote to Charlotte and thanked her for her gorgeous illustration and asked her if I could purchase a print of it, which I did. And then I rested and then I thought, oh yes, he's right. I hate to admit it, but he's correct. And I got in touch with her again and said, Charlotte, what do you think about doing a graphic book with me based on the speech? And she said, yes. So we started to work by Skype initially But then she came to New York and lived with me in my home. And we worked together in my basement. We have photographs and other images of, I still actually have the storyboard up on my my basement wall. It was a very intense collaboration, a wonderful collaboration. We had to confront the darkness together. It was difficult, the darknesses of the world. And we also explored what light means, what light might mean. And then we had to, of course, reconfigure a talk, an address, a speech into a graphic story, which is what we did. And we did it in the form of encounters with the philosophers and activists and anthropologists and poets that I mention in the book. But now they are illustrated as people who we encounter throughout the story in our exploration. That's how it came to be. Please say thank you to your husband for the idea, because I think it's wonderful. And I understand it was a long and hard process, but the result is very nice. And I think it's very accessible to people outside of your field. Yes. Actually, Charlotte and I presented at my college to students at my college early in the project when she was still here in New York. And we presented what we had at that point. And there were three immediate responses from the students that was overwhelming. The first student raised their hand said, this is so accessible. And of course, this was our goal. The second student said, you know, one of the people we encounter is Hannah Arendt, very important character in this book. And he said, I never heard of Hannah Arendt, but now I want to know more about who she was and what she wrote. So my reaction to him was, I love you. This is exactly, as a teacher, this is what we want. We don't want it to start and end with the book that we write. We want that to stimulate the audience, the reader, the viewer to go and dig more deeply into something. So I, oh, I wanted to pinch his cheeks. And then the third person was a young woman with tears streaming down her face. And she said, this is my life. So it hit all the points I think this graphic book of art and anthropology really elevates the genre and does provide in an accessible, beautiful way, an entree into knowledge, into a kind of knowledge that can be very complex. I mean, if you read Hannah Arendt's books, you know, you have to have a lot of time and take time and, but it introduces these Concepts of structural violence without saying the words, the phrase structural violence, but everything we've talked about up to this point in a way that people can understand, recognize it. I don't just say understand, but also recognize it. Because, you know, when I work with students and introduce the concept of structural violence and social suffering, it resonates with them because they have the life experience of it. And they don't necessarily have the language tools or analytic tools to to put a name to it. So I think this book really can uh, provide readers and viewers lots of things to think about in different ways. And in ways that I may not, and Charlotte and I may not even know what that reception will be and will come as a surprise to us. Yeah, that's really true. You don't know what point you hit and, and what happens after the book, but I definitely think something happens after reading this because you really start to think about something. And also all these names that you, you mentioned, I mean, you've heard them somewhere if, if you're not schooled in that 
um, area and and it makes you think oh maybe i should check it up a bit more and as we already now heard you were the author of several books and those reach out to a broader audience than your academic peers and the academic world As a science communicator and journalist, I of course love to see this approach and think it is very good that scientists themselves take the initiative and the time to write in a way that is more accessible. Especially in a time when knowledge is demonized by some political actors, when science is dismissed as unimportant by some powerful political actors, and, uh, you know, And if we just sit in a corner and talk to one another, and again, I'm not saying that everybody needs to do this because I do think there is a time and a place to talk to one another, but then there is also important to explain to the larger public, what is it that we do and how do we do it? And why is it important? And what can it do in this world? Marlin, since we talk about outreach, do you have anything at this point? Well, I I have a question that's related to your subject per se, because You've been talking a lot about trying to make the world better, trying to affect the world, trying to identify change using that kind of the world. How do you distinguish your work from politics? Or how does politics relate to your works? Because it's it seems like they're very closely adjacent at least. So it would be interesting to hear. That is a wonderful question, and you're right. So anthropology, unlike some disciplines, has as part of its mandate to help solve human problems. So that's already political. And actually, anthropology recognizes that everything is political. Nothing is not political. You know, the American Anthropological Association, for example, has as its right up front and center as part of its mission to help solve human problems. So of course, individual anthropologists can do that in many different kinds of ways. I'm gonna go backtrack a little bit and and talk about somebody who I find an inspiration for me, are actually two people. One is Gina Ulissi. She's a scholar and an artist and a performer. And she has written about and called on us to heal the split between the scholar in us and the world citizen, the anthropologist in us and the artist in us, the this in us and the that in us. And I love that because she's calling for a synthesis and not to cut off a piece of oneself in doing one's work. And so if you're an anthropologist and you have this you're trained in this discipline and you're exposed to all this knowledge and information. And then you feel compelled, not just to communicate it to larger audiences, that's part of it, but to actually do something about what you see is amiss in the world. What would that be? Well, there could be some big global things, but then there many anthropologists work on a very local type level. So there are many anthropologists who give testimony, for example, in immigration refugee courts, because they have deep knowledge of a particular group that has been displaced and dispossessed. They have expertise in that, and they can speak up in that setting because their knowledge and information informs a person's case. So that's one example. Uh, Another example is, you know, there are many anthropologists who are self-identified as applied or practicing anthropologists who are working in all sorts of sectors, private sector and nonprofit sector. They're anthropologists, but they're doing work in that area. So another example is somebody that comes to mind is a woman who is um, a graduate student in Lisbon. Her name is Laura Kuchulinen, and she has a project. I think I'm allowed to say the name of it here. It's called Give a Shit. And it's about water and The science of water, the science of, you know, it's of course it's related to climate change and water as a resource, as a resource it's becoming more and more scarce. And the reason it's called give a shit, her work is about toilets, working with designers and engineers in developing better toilets that are not so wasteful. It incorporates 
interdisciplinary research, and it also involves an application. And so I think that's a beautiful illustration of how we can take knowledge and put it to use in helping solve human problems. The other person I, I mentioned that is inspiring to me, besides Gina Ulissi, is Carolyn Nordstrom, who is a character in Light and Dark Times. She's one of the characters we encounter. But one of the things that she is, has written that I quote all the time is, each of us as human beings has a responsibility to contribute something creative to the world. Not more than one person can, but just our bit. And I think that to me has also been an organizing principle for my own life and work, because what it does is it says to us, you can't necessarily change everything, but you can do your bit. But you can only do your bit if you have awareness and consciousness to know what that bit might be. Thank you very much. So if I understand you correctly, we're saying that is anthropology per se is inherently political, basically. Yes. Because it has this society changing or mindset changing or cultural changing, working. Well, yeah. And so in a very explicit way, other disciplines you might not think are political at all. You know, you might think philosophy isn't political, you know, philosophy in general, but it is because, you know, whose philosophies are out there and are part of the canon and who is ignored, for example. So everything is political, but you're correct. Anthropology, at least the way I practice it, I mean, not everybody would necessarily agree, by the way. You know, some people would say, well, I'm sorry, but I'm not doing that. I'm not getting involved in politics or political. And when I say politics, I don't mean like partisan politics, but we mean politics in the broadest sense of power dynamics. But they are, because if you don't participate, or if you say you're not participating, that's a form of participation. So I'm guessing also that this is kind of one of your big forces that drives you also to communicate out of the ivory tower to get outreach. Yes. Very interesting. Thanks for letting me step in, Natalie. <laughs> Thank you very much for your question. I would really like to talk a bit more about the book, uh, Light in Dark Times. And we have already now heard that it's about you invite really the readers to consider the big questions like how will we pass our time on Earth and what of us in dark times as the reader travels through knowledge and meets all these knowledgeable persons in your book through you and the artists doing this journey. So you are the main character and you encounter writers, philosophers, activists and other anthropologists whose words are as meaningful today as they were when they were written, and some quite a while ago. So first of all, I wonder, how do we know that we live in dark times? How do we recognize the darkness? So I don't think we need to look very far to, to see that we live in dark times. And so if you'll let me, I'm going to just rattle off a couple of statistics to give you a sense. So. Here are some things from the latest news. Worldwide, there's an estimated 821 million people go to bed hungry and undernourished each day. There are nearly 80 million forcibly displaced people. Now that number keeps growing. In light and dark times, we mention the millions of forcibly displaced people. And it's now 10 million more than we document in Light and Dark Times, which just came out in September. Over 800,000 people have died since November 2001 as a direct result of war in major war zones. An estimated 1.13 million deaths worldwide from COVID, with nearly 41 million positive cases in the world. And that's most recent data. There are over 220,000 people dead in the United States from COVID as of this week. This is, to me, these are genocidal numbers. And it's not just a disease in the abstract. It is tied to 
climate change. It is tied to so many other forces and factors. We can list them. But, you know, those are numbers. And then there is also the context, the context of irreversible climate damage, devastating economic collapses, rampant power abuses, xenophobia, racism, sexism, dehumanization. These are the darknesses. Unless people have their blinders on, I mean, it is there. We may not want to confront it, but it's there. Now, in this context, I want to mention that just a couple of weeks ago, I have a, an article published in the Swedish Journal of Anthropology. I think Sweden is becoming my second home, by the way. And it's part of a series in the journal organized by um, the anthropologist Paul Stoller. And my essay is titled, Imagining World Solidarities for a Livable Future. And in that essay, I go over the darknesses. I confront the darknesses by invoking writers who have written very presciently about the darknesses that we are seeing today. So that's one thing. And the other thing, going back to light and dark times, is we encounter Bertolt Brecht, who wrote his poem To Posterity on the Eve of World War II. I'm going to take this, if you'll bear with me, to just read the first four lines to posterity. Truly, I live in dark times. He who laughs has not yet received the terrible news. Do we live in dark times? Part of the message, I think, in light in dark times is we need to go there. We need to confront the darkness. Now, when Charlotte and I worked on our collaboration together, one of the most fraught moments, multiple times that we had was, you know, I'm a lot older than Charlotte. She's a young woman, artist, very talented, beautiful artist. She'd get very down when we talked about the darknesses. And she'd have to leave my house and go for a run or do some meditation or just, you know, go away, go away from it. And I would stay back and say, I understand. It's painful. But we need to confront it if we're going to do something about it. Of course, it would be much easier to just pretend it isn't there if it doesn't affect us personally. But I think we see with this pandemic, with COVID, that the fracture lines have been there all along. And now they're broken wide open. And it's so clear. Because what we're seeing now, the darkness is not new. And we also make that point in light and dark times. Because we see now all over the world a lot of things happening and you wonder what has this world become. Agreed. Agreed with that. So you said that one of the ways to find the light is to embrace the darkness first and, and realize it's there. But what other ways are there to find the light? How can we get out of the darkness? I think in multiple ways. But in the, in the book, Light and Dark Times, what we talk about is something that is a necessary, if insufficient, condition to get out of darkness, and that is knowledge. That's why our journey is through knowledge. And in my original talk, when I said four stories, a lament, and an affirmation, the affirmation part had to do with, and again, at that point, I was talking to the anthropological audience, and in the book, it's a broader audience. So it is a knowledge that comes from anthropology, but it's also knowledge that comes from many different disciplines as well. Why? Because I say, we say in the book, in order for us to make social change towards social justice, we need to know the world. First, we need to know the world. Can't just assume it. And then we can come up with the solutions. And the book is not prescriptive. We call on the reader viewer to unleash their imaginations rather than our saying, okay, to change the world, this is what you need to do. No, everybody needs to think about if they understand the darkness, if they understand the structures and systems that are the motor for the darknesses, if they feel a sense of responsibility to do something while operating in the world as it exists, because we all have to pay our rent and do, you know, we have to do what we have to do every single day. 
We have to make the meals for our children. We have to take care of, you know, whatever we have to take care of. But, you know, leave time to do something that is for the common good, for the larger good, so that we can strive to reach an alternative world. And to know the world is a step towards mutual understanding on a grand scale, which is a quote from Hannah Arendt. Yeah, so the alternative world, it sounds like a beautiful place in the book. But what do you really mean with the alternative world and how, how can we get there? How can we organize society differently in its economic and its political structures? Of course, this is a huge challenge. And again, in this book, we're not being prescriptive. But one of the things, there are several pages in which we invoke the writer, Eduardo Galeano, who wrote a book, The Upside Down World. And one of the exercises that I learned about from a student who brought it to one of my classes is the following that we write about in the book. That in this classroom, or it can be done with anybody, we come together, a group of people, and we write down on a piece of paper one thing that you would change if you could change things. And we put it, put these ideas in a, in a bowl, and then people picked up, up the pieces of paper and read one another's vision. And that, to me, is a start. Because one of the things we do not do is take the time and the space to say, hmm, like you just said, oh, it sounds so beautiful, but like, what is it? Okay, well, maybe that's our challenge. Let us take the time. I know we're all busy. I know we have 20,000 emails to answer, but let us take the time to say, okay, what would the world look like? What would it look like? And once we can start to envision that, then maybe we can start working collectively to figure out the steps and the strategies to make that happen. You might say I'm naive. You might say I'm a dreamer. That may be true. But if we don't have the vision and the dream, you know, what is the future going to look like? Frankly, the darkness has been very depressing, of course. I have children. I have grandchildren. And I have all the children who were my students over the years. And I'm very worried for all of the children of the world and their future. But this gives me a sense of a possibility. Things may not work out 100% well, but we need to work towards finding solutions. Again, it sounds trite, but finding solutions to help solve human problems. It may be very violent. I do not know. It may be that the changes, change will only occur with great violence. I've, I don't know. I'm a pacifist, so it's, I see the contradictions in that. But we've got to strive and we've got to think about a way to, towards enabling individuals, everybody, to fulfill their own potentials. And to me, that is one of the visions. Right now, the way things are organized, some people can fulfill their potential. And other people are denied that ability because of the material conditions of their lives. So what is it that we need to do to ensure that all of the children can live in a world so that they can fulfill their own potential? Then we won't have a world of structural violence. But the inequalities right now are so enormous. And the United States is such a prime example of that. And the level of corruption is so enormous. And the divisiveness is not even an adequate word. I mean, frankly, you know, the election in the United States is in two weeks. And many of us are very worried about the outcome on so many levels. On the outcome, will voters be turned away? Will the election be corrupted? If the current president of the United States loses, will there be enormous violence? I don't know what's going to happen, but hopefully, hopefully the institutions that are functioning in this country are strong enough that we will not see a disaster in the coming weeks. You know, Hannah Arendt also wrote about that. It was during the Nixon era 
with the revelations of Watergate and the Pentagon Papers that she wrote a piece in The New Yorker, I think it was, that she talked about the lies, political lies and the politicians lying. And, and then she wrote that the saving grace for the United States were two of its institutions, the media and the courts. But now in the United States, we have Fox News that has an enormous audience. And it's not news, it's propaganda. It's a powerful propaganda machine. And you also have courts that have been filled in these past several years, four years, with people who aren't necessarily going to protect us come this election. Let us see what happens. Marlene, is there anything you would like to add at this point? Yeah, I have one uh, one question that I'm thinking about. It goes back to what you talked about earlier. You talked about uh, we need to face the darkness. We need to put light in the darkness. We need to explore the darkness. And it's made me curious to spend so much time in the darkness or in trying to see the darkness. What is the most important dark corners that you think that we should step into and look through? Well, I don't like to be prescriptive, but I think at this moment in the world, the structures and systems generated by capitalism need to be confronted. And anytime there is a discussion about that, people then go launch into a set of accusations. So what do you want? Communism? What do you want? Those things that have already been demonized. But we need to go back and, and look at the way the economic motor of the world globally at this time is, is organized because that is where, by definition, there have to be inequalities because if the purpose of capitalism is the accumulation of capital for some and not others, we already have an inequality. Now, there have been forms of capitalist economic societies that have interventions within it providing safety nets and other kinds of life-affirming services that enable there to be degrees of, in, of wealth inequalities, but not to the degree that it is at this time under what these called these days neoliberal capitalism, where you know, there is the withdrawal of such services, where you know, the market reigns. This is the motor, in my view, behind the vast inequalities. And before the suffering comes the demonizations and the displacements. That's what's behind it. And we need to face up to that and do something about it. You know, I'm not going to say what should be done about it, but that is the core problem. And I think we need to study this aspect. That is the darkest of the corners, in my view. So this is your latest book. You have written six before that. And one that I really, that one that really caught my attention was the book called My Father's Wars, where you connect your work as an anthropologist to your own life and that of your father, as you have already mentioned before. So can you just briefly tell us a little bit about this book and also the work process behind it? Because that was a little bit different, I think, also. Absolutely. So my father's wars, migration, memory, and the violence of the century. Now, this is a book that is very different from what anthropologists generally do. Why? Because I took as my subject, my own father. So usually anthropologists go to other places. I mean, even if they're doing research in their own backyard, as I did with my project on women and homelessness, for example. But here I decided, um, again, this is at a later point in my career in life. So I had the freedom to experiment. And this project emerged out of a lot of discussions and conversations I had with a friend and colleague, Barbara Kobauer, also wrote a book. Actually, we published our respective books at the same time. And hers is called A Polish Doctor in the Nazi Camps. And it's a study of her mother. And so Barbara and I developed a term to capture 
the approach that we've taken in this book. And that term is intimate ethnography. So ethnography is the research method I mentioned before, where you immerse yourself in the lives of another social group, another cultural group. But intimate ethnography, again, takes an intimate other as the subject of their work. So we came to our projects as daughters, but not just as daughters, as anthropologists, as anthropologist daughters. So it couldn't be, oh, we thought through this so much. It couldn't be a memoir. It couldn't be just a biography. There is something in anthropology called autoethnography, self-ethnography, where people write about their own experience and then sort of edge out to something larger. But this book is not about me, even though I'm, I invoke myself in it at different points, but, but that's only because I'm related to the subject. <laughs> but it's really about an intimate other. What I wanted to do in this book, which I did, was capture the individual in a larger history. So my father was born in northeastern Poland on the eve of World War I. He was born Menachem Mendel Wasserstein, or Mendeli in the diminutive. And I think part of my interest in violence, literal but structural also, has to do with my own father's life experience, which became more clear to me as I did the project. And it took me about a dozen years to do. So he was born into war. And there was war on his doorstep. And he and his family left Poland after World War I, and they went to Cuba. And in Cuba, they lived in a town called Manguito, which is in the province of Matanzas. And in Manguito, my father became known as Miguelito, which is the diminutive of Miguel. And then later on, he left Manguito for Havana, where he became Miguel. And then he joined the U.S. military in order to become a U.S. citizen during World War II. And there he became Michael Waterston. My last name is Waterston. And then later, at the end of his life, he became a very respected merchant in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and became known as Don Miguel. So what you can see in all the different name changes is a life history that crosses continents, cultures, language groups, wars, two wars, and one revolution. Because there was the Cuban revolution, which changed the trajectory of his life as well. So my book, My Father's Wars, is that story of migration. It is the story of his internal battles situated in the larger historical conditions and events. And that, again, captures, I think, an important aspect of what anthropology does. It's what I, going back to what the beginning of this conversation, the individual, with, you can't reduce the individual just to these historical events and conditions, because then there's no agency. And we know there's agency. We know that humans find joy, are creative, are inventive. They dream. They do, they love, they, you know, they hate, they do all of those things. There's agency, but it's not all about free will because we're always situated in something larger that shaped the course of our lives. So why, my questions were a series of whys. Why were the Germans and the Russians fighting on the streets of Yedvabne at that time when he was a little boy? Why did he end up in Cuba and in Matanzas? Why did he join the U.S. military? Why did he go to Puerto Rico? Why this? Why that? And so the way this book is structured, and again, I was trying to reach a larger audience, the structure of the book itself is as follows. Every chapter has two parts. The first part of every chapter is written in third person omniscient, which means that I don't say, my father, he was born in Poland. You know, I don't do that. I say, Mendeley, I talk about Mendeley when we're in Poland and I tell the story in the third person. And then if you read each first half of every chapter, it follows the story. It tells a story. So we start out with Mendeley and then we go to Miguelito, et cetera, et cetera. The second half of, of every chapter edges out from the story 
first to the first person where I say, hmm, my father, I'm washing the dishes or I'm looking at something or whatever it may be that I'm, I'm telling the reader that I'm doing and I'm thinking about something he said and I can't get a satisfactory answer from him. So I need to go to other sources to find out the answer to my questions. And so I edge out and then provide the reader of the larger historical, cultural context for that give meaning and shape to the story. It's the analysis. But I do so in such a way that is short and clear. So, for example, when we're in Poland, I give a 400-year history of Poland in like five pages, you know? (laughs) That's to give, again, the reader a sense without banging them over the head with theory and analysis and history. And so for each chapter, we do that and we bring it all the way up the whole 20th century because he lived the whole 20th century practically. He died at 93 and that's what we did. And I think that this book really, what it does is it helps us bring the past into the present. It helps us see the connections between these histories that are also, they're contingent and they're, you know, it's not the same exactly, of course, because it's a different time and a different place, but you can see patterns and parallels. So for example, I won't go into too much detail, but migration and why they ended up in Cuba as opposed to with their goal, which was the United States. Well, that had to do with the racialized immigration law in the United States in 1924 and the demonization of people like my father, who was an Eastern European Jew, not welcome in the United States at that time when there was the rhetoric, like the rhetoric today, but attached to different kinds of people. There are people from different places that is more or less the same thing. You see it repeated, the rhetoric and the rationale for why we don't want those others on our shores. Despite the contradictory fact that we have the Statue of Liberty that is there to welcome people in New York Harbor. This gave me a lot to think about also. You are referring to the First and Second World War there. You already said that and also to a revolution. And I mean, these two wars, they have affected the whole world and and many generations also after the war. Me personally, I'm, I'm born and grown up in Germany a long time after the war in the, in the 70s, but still, I mean, you, you live with the past and you're confronted with it all the time. And uh, my parents are after-war children, so to say. And of course, they have been affected immensely by the consequences of the Second World War. Nowadays, what parallels can you see to populism and polarization of the society today? Why is it so important that we keep on studying this, that we don't stop talking about what has happened. So if you will, I actually wanted to mention something before turning to that question. I mentioned that the term intimate ethnography is an approach that Barbara Lukalbauer and I developed. I think more and more anthropologists are invoking it, looking at their own family histories and trying to understand the connections. As you just described, it doesn't have to be just anthropologists that are doing this. But I wanted to mention that just this, just this week, I was invited by Bergan Books, an international publisher, to run a series, a new line, to launch a new line of books, of monographs, called Intimate Ethnography. So I'm looking forward to seeing more books in this genre, which is really fabulous and, look, and very much looking forward to To learning, for example, you just said, you know, you have this in your own family history, and we all do. And I think those who are trained in ethnography can find a way to develop these stories, what Carol McCranahan calls theoretical storytelling, that gives us nonfiction stories, but that are deeply situated in an explication of the larger historical contexts. And I think that's going to be a really valuable contribution. Okay, so going back to the parallels. Well, that's the thing. The parallels are there. The patterns are there. I just mentioned the immigration law of 1924. At that time, there were books on eugenics. And there was a eugenics movement that actually the Nazis used later 
books produced in the United States as justification and rationale for the extermination of Jews and others during the Holocaust. So we have to be very wary of these kinds of false sciences, these false narratives that can have very powerful effects. And we have to also learn history and know history and look at the patterns, look at the processes. Of course, you know, the cliche, unless you want to have history of it repeat itself. And that's true. It's not just cliche. But we also have to be alert so that we don't come to false conclusions because we might. So the more knowledge we have, the more information we have about the past and can understand and synthesize it, the better I think we can understand what we're up against in this time. So, you know, a lot of people are now afraid to use the term fascism for describing what what we're in, in the United States right now. But I've noticed actually in the past couple of weeks that more are not afraid to use it. And again, I'm going to invoke Hannah Arendt, who said we need to be clear in our definitions so that we know what is the content of X, Y, or Z, so that we know what we're looking at. And we can only know that by looking at the past experiences. I think also there's another point, which is actually there are two points. I'll start with this. One of the things I find particularly frustrating is that after horrific events, 20, 30 years later, then there is a coming to terms. A country may come to terms with its dark past. Germany went through that. Poland went through that until recently when it was kind of put to a stop. And that's a very important exercise. But why do we always have to wait until decades later? Where are people now? The information is there. That's, again, facing up to it. We need to know it and face up to it and say, no, it's not acceptable. This is not acceptable. That is not acceptable. The other thing is not acceptable. Not wait 30 years from now to say, oh, I didn't know. Oh, we didn't know. Yes, there is no excuse. We know now that there is enough people saying, we know. I mean, when Bush invaded Iraq, people were out in the streets saying, no, no. And then later they said, oh, we made a mistake. No, you didn't. We didn't know. Yes, you did know. We knew. Anyway, the other thing is about knowing history. This is my second point. It's tragic to me that History is one of the subjects that is so neglected. There are so many recent statistics about how young people don't know anything about the Holocaust, for example. How could this be? And that's just one example. And of course, there are the histories that are silenced purposely. In the United States, African-American history is silenced so much of the time. So we need to take these stories and these histories out of the shadows and bring them up front and forward. If we want, again, going back to envisioning an alternative world, if we want it to be a less violent world that we live in, we want people to be able to fulfill their potentials and not be buried by the structural violences. Yeah, we've talked for quite a while, so let's talk a little bit also about your connection to SCAS, to the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. You are a non-resident long-term fellow here for the programs in, in transnational processes, structural violence and inequality. So how does this gas fit into your research profile and vice versa? How do you fit here? Well, I think by uh, those very terms of the program that I'm in, you see the fit. I am very honored to be a long-term fellow at SCAS, the Swedish Collegium. For advanced study. To date, I haven't been there physically, uh, but I have been participating in activities via Zoom. And I think one of the wonderful things about the Collegium overall is that it provides a venue that brings people together from different disciplines to nurture and learn from one another. And I think that is a wonderful, rare opportunity. I know in my own professional life as a professor and department chair for the past several years, 
you know, we can get very bogged down with a lot of administrative duties and other kinds of obligations, especially now that we're in this audit culture where, you know, every other email that comes in from the administration is about counting this or proving that or fighting for this other thing. And so SCAS is a wonderful retreat, if you will, providing scholars an opportunity to do what scholars are supposed to be able to do, which is to think, to study, to consider, to reflect, to learn from one another. I'm delighted to be here and part of this and have already forged some uh, good friendships, I think, and also, even though it's via Zoom, but also been exposed to the work of several fellows who are here and also those who are applying to become part of the program. So part of my duties as a fellow is to read proposals and to participate with a panel of other fellows to assess which award to be given to which candidates. And that's been a very rewarding and enlightening experience. Yeah, what I get from the other fellows I've talked to here is that it's a very nice environment to, as you say, think and really do your scholarly work and also to meet people or scholars from completely different disciplines. So you mentioned that you're planning uh, to come here. What are your plans? So my plan is right now I have put in to my university a request for a sabbatical for fall of 2021 and spring of 2022. And I do have opportunity as a SCAS fellow to have a three-month residency. And I hope that by then we'll be able to travel and hope to come in uh, the latter part of the spring of 2022. And I have three projects that I want to work on while I'm on sabbatical. So I will get these started prior to arriving, I think. So one of them is this summer, Charlotte and I presented at the uh, European Association of Social Anthropologists virtual conference. It's an annual conference, but it was virtual. It was held in Lisbon. And I was on a panel organized by Helena Wolf and Petra Rothman. And Charlotte was on um, exceptional experiences. Charlotte and I presented on our collaboration in making light and dark times. So Helena and Petra have now invited us to develop our papers into a chapter in a forthcoming edited volume that they're preparing. And it is titled Exceptional Experiences, New Horizons in Anthropological Studies of Art, Aesthetics, and Everyday Life. I think that's going to be a really rich volume. And Charlene and I will write on art and anthropology in graphic form, exceptional experience and extraordinary collaboration in the making of Light and Dark Times. So I, I plan on during my sabbatical to work on that chapter. Also, Maria Vespiri, my co-editor on Anthropology Off the Shelf, she and I are planning a second volume called Anthropology Off the Shelf Redux. And what we want to do is again, invite scholars to write short 5,000 word entries to take us to the next level in this anthropology off the shelf series in terms of how scholars are using what we in my discipline called multimodal anthropology to convey knowledge, to disseminate knowledge. So people are doing more and more things. Charlotte and I did a graphic book. Others are doing performance art. Others are doing film and video, which anthropologists have done that for a long time, but They're using the new tools and technologies in very creative ways. So we want to bring together in this volume a group of contributors who will share with us what their experiences are, what they've done, why they've done it, who they imagine their audience to be, what are the afterlives of their works. And then finally, the project that I really would like to work on when I'm in Sweden to try my hand at is a work of fiction. I actually like writing. I enjoy writing. I mean, I struggle with it and I go through emotional turmoil while I'm writing, but I actually consider myself a writer anthropologist. And I have an idea for a novel, an ethnographic fiction piece, if you will, but novel length 
that I've had in my head for decades, literally. And it's titled Althusser's Ghost. And I don't know exactly what the narrative would, will be, but it will incorporate madness and Marxism and gender and power and of course violence and more, but in the form of, you know, a novel with, with characters. So that's, that's my, my plan. Now, just this past September, I tried my hand at writing fiction for the first time. I never did it before. I think I might have tried my hand at it when I was 12 years old or something and then, you know, never pursued it. So I'm a nonfiction writer, but I tried my hand at writing a short story that I title Interiors. And I'm pleased to let you know that it's going to be published in a journal called Anthropology Now under what they told me is going to be a new feature in the journal called ethnographic fiction. And my piece will be the first one. It's very short, it's less than 3000 words. So I'm very excited about it. And it gave me the fact that it was accepted, gives me confidence to pursue this project of ethnographic fiction while I'm in Sweden. And I feel that I'll be away from New York. I'll be away from my, my university and my department, and I will be away from everything. And I will be able to do what SCAS is allowing people to do, which is to take the time to work on a project and go with it in all its creative potential. Thank you very much for joining SCAS Talks. It was lovely to talk to you and to get more insight into your really interesting work. And we're also looking forward to seeing you here at SCAS. Hope everything goes well and that you can come and also write your book here. And also thanks to you, Malin, for joining us today. I will just say a warmest thank you for allowing me to be here. It's been a pleasure and really, really good food for thoughts. Thank you. I just want to thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you and uh, to be part of SCAS. I'm delighted. I look forward to seeing you, you know, hopefully in spring of 2022 to continue the conversation. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast from the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that it brought some light into the darkness. In the coming episodes, we continue with our two current themes, language and diversity. Do you want to help us to spread the news about this episode and SCAS talks? Please recommend it to a friend or a colleague. You can find SCAS talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. There you can also listen to all previous episodes. Bye for now!